The following episode is comprised of two conversations Martin Ware and I had in 2020. The first was in January, conducted at his studio in London. We ran out of time during that first taping. We were going to have a second meetup, but of course, I got very sick, and then the pandemic happened. So, we resumed our conversation in December 2020. So, two very different contexts, but the same fabulous guest. In the time since we first spoke, Martin's also started a terrific podcast called Electronically Yours with Martin Ware. On it, he talks to fellow electronic music pioneers and other people of interest, so go check that out. Anyway, here's the show. Dear listeners, brace yourself, because you're about to hear from a man who not only created his own path and future, but also shaped the future of music as we know it by creating two of the most influential electronic bands in this or any other known universe, The Human League and Heaven 17. It's my pleasure to present my guest on this episode of Whimsically Volatile, the man behind so many toe tuppers, but the man behind so many toe tappers, beloved by all of the geisha boys and temple girls around the world. Please welcome with me, Mr. Martin Ware. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> right, you insert applause here. <laughs> exactly. Oh, I will for sure. <laughs> Well, it's, it's nice to meet you, Barton. Lovely chatting with yeah, you. Yeah, nice talking to you. And we're uh, coming uh, to you from your studio. Yes, I'm in King's Cross in London. I love this place. My studio is totally silent. Yeah, it it's is. Got it's got no fabulous. windows. <laughs> if there was a nuclear attack outside, I probably wouldn't notice. It's like a bunker. It's yeah, great. sure. There's no clocks or watches or ref- reference to time at all. Which is perfect. Now, what are your work habits? Do you tend to get absorbed in something and sort of uh, ignore the clock? Yes, I never look at the clock. That's interesting. Ever. Yeah. Ever, ever, um, you know, people go, oh, you know, mindfulness and <laughs> and you know, like uh, all that stuff, and I've got to go to a class to be mindful. <laughs> well, to me, my my form of um, significant mindfulness is is uh, composition and you know, getting into the zone. Yeah, uh, sure. and that's always been uh, my escape from the drudgery of everyday reality. Yeah, and you really made a quite a, a tremendous escape from the drudgery uh, living in Sheffield, and not to yeah. put Sheffield down or anything, uh, but lower economic situation, if I'm correct about that. Yeah, it's not quite the same anymore, but okay. certainly when it, in the 70s it was, yeah. Essentially, there was not much to do yeah. uh, in the 70s. Um, it was a, to set the scene, it was kind of like our version of Detroit, you know, uh, except it's not cars, it was steel. <laughs> right. I suppose Pittsburgh, I suppose. Um, uh, where the steel industry had been decimated by the by the, the, the conservative government at that time. And 80,000 jobs were lost in like a few years. I mean, not as though I was ever going to go and start being a steel you know, worker. A steel worker. Yeah. But, but it just has an generally, atmospheric effect in that. Yeah, yeah. generally, it, the, the, you know, it's a depressed, economically depressed town. And not only that, um, there wasn't really much in the way of uh, kind of clubs and, and, and venues. Sure. Apart yeah. from it's big student town, so we managed okay. to get fake student IDs and went to see bands there. That was the best thing to do. And then there's one big venue, which is the City Hall, where we saw all the big bands who came into town. T-Rex, right? Uh, yeah, which... and we used to break into the City <laughs> Hall because we couldn't afford the tickets. Sure, yeah, right, exactly. Um, so, you know, I'm not I'm, kids, I'm not advocating <laughs> this sort of stuff. But, uh, you know, it's very important. So 
consequently, the, 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 the one thing we did have as a resource, there were a lot of places that used to be small engineering works, like tool making or cutlery finishing or such things, uh, little kind of factories, really, around the city centre. And a lot of those were empty because of the economic downturn. And you could rent them for peanuts. That's what we ended up doing. We thought we were some kind. We were all obsessed with Andy Warhol, sure, and the kind of, kind of grungy, kind of post-industrial, you know, the whole kind of CBGBs. Sure, you know, the, all, and the DIY this was our big thing, thing too. Yeah, okay. uh, this is what yeah. we loved. The, yeah. This was our fantasy world, the New York. Yeah, so we would make it. So we were into this. This is way before gentrification was sure. a thing. Yeah. Uh, the idea of taking over really scruffy, old, uh, dirty, frankly, sure. places and, yeah. and making them into creative place, uh, right. a creative hub, yeah, uh, is what we were doing right from when we were teenagers, really, because it didn't cost anything, yeah. and we could fantasize about the fact that we were some kind of cool artistic commune. Never had any ambition to be professional musicians, though. So there were two big engines, I suppose, that drove us. One was glam yeah. and kind of early punk, sure. like, you know, Iggy Pop and kind of New York Dolls and Krautrock sure, yeah. and that kind of thing, uh, which was all a kind of, it's kind of like the edgier end of hippiedom. It is how we saw it. Um, we thought we were kind of very cool and post-industrial and more modern and more modern. Although we had no money, uh, sure. it didn't seem to matter because really it was all about getting girls. You know, yeah, at that sure. Point. And and also presentation, right? Because I've noticed that you have been very aware of image, how it yes. affects and how it makes you feel inside as well. Well, I was about to say the second engine that was driving oh, okay. everything me, that yeah. came <laughs> along was punk. Really. Yeah, sure. In punk in Britain, which we loved. Yeah. I mean, we're all, we, everybody was a punk for at least a month. Sure. <laughs> I mean, I had a you know, t-shirt with, you know, ripped t-shirt with yeah. safety, uh, pins, safety and... pins and bondage trousers. Sure. Not for long, though, because we very quickly realized it was a fantastic energy. But actually, the music was quite old-fashioned and rock and roll, and mm -hmm. we thought there was, we were always kind of looking towards the future, more interested in electronic music. We couldn't afford synthesizers, but then we, myself and Ian and Glenn started, we got our first jobs in Sheffield as computer operators and stuff, and Glenn was a photographer. Uh, not Glenn, sorry, at that point it wasn't Glenn, it was Phil. Oh, Phil yeah, yeah. I was friends with Phil at, Phil Oakey at um, my school. Right, singer of Human League, yeah, for those yeah. not familiar. Yeah. So really, I knew Ian and Glenn before I, uh, 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 before I knew Phil. You would ask Glenn to be yeah. a singer in your band, yeah, right? Yeah, but exactly. then he was f doing a photography. Yeah, and, that's it. And yeah. he was, he'd moved down to London. Glenn would have been the original singer of the Human League had he not just moved down to London. But another important thing about punk was, firstly, we didn't want to be a rock and roll band. I bought an electric guitar and it hurt my fingers. <laughs> sure, sure. Uh, secondly, we got no, none of us had got any conventional musical training. Uh -huh. So we were more interested in kind of music concrete uh, and... Uh, the conceptual side, the conceptual of side of things, sure. and designing sounds, right? More than and recording and and mm -hmm. and, and building uh, soundscapes, really. Than we were, uh, we were still pop fans, but we didn't know how to do it. So we never had any ambition. We never thought it was a possibility that sure. we'd ever be a, a, a professional music band. Mm -hmm. We're doing it for our, for artistic reasons as a kind of art project. Yeah. But the other thing I was going to say is what's probably more significant 
as a fallout from the punk period was the the ethos of do it yourself yes so the idea of uh like we used we created our, our own fanzines for instance and uh-huh. printed them ourselves yeah went round to shops and sold uh, you know persuaded people to stock them even went down to rough trade in london and got them to stock them you know and stuff like that this kind of micro entrepreneurialism yeah entrepreneurialism that's a hard <laughs> thing to say at this point is um, this time of day it's like- is something that really made us realize that we wanted to control how we were perceived. Consequently, to cut a long story short, when we eventually got a break and Being Boiled was put out by Fast Records, I designed the sleeve. And we had written into our contract, when we got signed by Virgin Records, when that was a success, Yeah, we had written into our contract that we had final control and say-so over all artwork. Of course, I'm sure at the same time, the music as well. Yeah, and the music. And we said they didn't have any right to interfere with any of it. They had a right to have an opinion. And sure. we would listen to them, but only when it was done. They could suggest amendments or, you know, whatever. Sure. Uh, but they weren't allowed. And this was written in the contract. They were not allowed to interfere with the creative process. It's amazing that the labels at the time were so open for that sort of thing. Now, was well, that Virgin was quite Virgin, kind or, of okay. opposed kind of hippie label really okay. i mean they, they so much about having success in this business is about being in the right place at the right time sure so they'd just released one of their first five records was tubular bells oh, right which sold like 20 million copies <laughs> or something yeah they were awash with cash yeah so rather than pay tax on it what do they do they try and sign up as many interesting bands as possible. And oh, sure. Okay. We were riding on that particular wave. That's why they were signing people like us and a bit later on, you know, Boy George. And, oh, sure. And, and, and you, know, you know, any number of bands, the Skids. Sure, the Sex Pistols, you know, uh, Devo. And, and, oh, yeah, right, right, right? yeah. And uh, that's how we became friends with Devo, by the way. So, Oh, that's cool. We had the same management in those days. Uh-huh. I'm still friends with with uh, Jerry. Oh, cool, yeah. I want to talk to Jerry sometime. He's yeah, fascinating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He got ill, actually. I think he's all right now, though. Oh, I'm glad to hear he's okay. Yeah, a friend yeah. of mine plays with them now, uh, Josh Hager. He's, Is that right? He, yeah, he's been with them for about f- drummer, five years. Uh, no, he does, uh, I think, guitar and keyboards. Oh, cool. Uh, after the passing. Are they still? The, yes, they still get together, and not as frequently as they did, but they did, for instance, that John Waters festival that he does right. in Maryland, maybe. I mean, Devo were a big influence on us. Oh, I can imagine. You know, the, the, their live show was phenomenal. This is way before the curve. Yeah. You know, the idea of having a, you know, embedding kind of uh, sketches onto a big screen at the back yeah. of their performance and interacting with it. <laughs> it were, this theatricality was a big thing, yeah. which really influenced us. And we, we decided... The three of us with the early Hume League were so dull on stage uh, to look at. Just as a band, we weren't. We didn't move. Phil didn't even well, really sure. move. Well, sure. It's hard to behind a keyboard uh, stand, really. Well, you know, yeah, yeah, but even Phil was not not exactly, you know, kind of Freddie Mercury. <laughs> uh, that's not a criticism. It's just the way he no, is. No, I know. It's just funny. I was so, just thinking um, of Freddie playing with you guys. You know, it's yeah, just like yeah, that, yeah, that yeah, image yeah. is very funny. Uh, but So that's why we decided to make it more like a multimedia event with projections. Yeah, and, so. and you had a member of the band whose sole yeah, yeah. Uh, responsibility Wright, was that, yeah. right? Yeah, which is uh, really ahead of its time. I don't yeah. think that that was done Pretty much at all. much ahead of its time. Even having screens. 
you guys, Devo. Other than that, it didn't take to it took till like the early eighties till bands yeah. like Journey, yeah. et cetera, even incorporated that. There was a there was an unintended consequence of that, which is the fact that we were using Kodak carousel projectors. Yeah, with they weren't very bright. Okay. Right? Yeah. I mean, they had a charismatic look. Sure. And they were heavily vignetted and all uh-huh. that stuff. Yeah. Um, but um, they weren't very bright. So it meant that, we, you know, from a lighting design point of view, when we're on stage, by necessity, we were lit quite dimly. Oh, right, because it would blow out the yeah, image. Yeah, because it would have the... blown out the imagery. Sure. Yeah. So... Um, and people thought this was a deliberate thing, and they thought I did cave as more of a kind of goth type <laughs> atmosphere. Mysterious. And, uh, uh, there was yeah. one funny story, actually, I yeah. must tell you. Um, Please. Round about the time we, we started, we we did a couple of tours with Susan and the Banshees. Right. I don't know if people in America know who they Oh, are. no. They're, yeah, they're quite yeah, big, yeah, especially yeah, amongst, okay. uh, I think, yeah. our listeners. For so sure. Susan and the Banshees were a very, you know, kind of uh, successful punk acts and they kind of crossed over into the pop field and they kindly allowed us to support them on their on a couple of tours at that time their audience was punks and a lot of punks were skinheads oh okay yeah it was just that period of time sure so we used to come on as the support act living in fear a lot of the time because a lot of them might have gone and you can bleep this out if you want but no that's okay uh, Any language is yeah, fine. Yeah, okay. Uh, might have been going. What the fuck is this? Generally, they were ju- they were more curious than violent. However, there were a couple of gigs that we did where it was just what they wanted to do. It was it was almost like a mark of uh, respect in a kind of tribal way that they used to gob at you. Oh right, right. A lot of spitting. A yeah. lot of spitting. <laughs> It wouldn't matter if the if the audience were beyond a barrier or a bit further back, but there were certain venues where they came right up to the stage. Yeah, and there was one particular venue which was in a place called Stoke on Trent, place called the Victoria Hall. I came off stage at the end of our set, and it had been pretty. You know, there was a lot of gobbing going on. Yeah, and uh, came off stage at the end, and it was going. Are you all right, Martin? I'm going. Yeah, it's fine. I'm, I mean, you know, a bit of gobbing, but you know, yeah, you get used to it after. A yeah, while, used yeah. after a while. I said, "Cause you're covered in blood, <laughs> right?" So this guy, somebody had seen from the side, had been banging his nose on the edge of the stage. Oh my god! Swallowing the blood and spitting it out. Ugh, wow! Can you imagine? I can't. That, I guess that's how some people enjoy a gig. That seems a bit that, much. That for, was, uh, it was an extreme time. That's yeah. what I was saying. <laughs> Certainly. So yeah. anyway, after yeah. this point, yeah, after a few of these gigs, Ian Marsh. Um, who had a actually a System 100, which is in my studio behind me. Oh, now. yeah, yeah, not your, that your one, but synth, the, the right? same model, sure, yeah. Um, he'd bought this on higher purchase, yeah, so uh, he couldn't afford for you know, there was it wasn't, I don't think it was insured or anything. Oh, sure, and he was worried about it getting damaged by the spit, of course. So yeah. he built this stand with perspex screens around the side, <laughs> and of course, the uh, the uh, journalists were saying. Oh, there was a bit, that's right, a big article in New Musical Express, uh-huh. which is the biggest rock magazine in Britain at the yeah. time. Had a big circulation. The following week, had a review of the gig, and it said, you know, uh, Ian, Mar- Ian Marsh's brilliantly conceived um, symbol of, uh, symbol uh, of, uh, 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 of alienation, of, uh, yeah, alienation yeah, yeah. and disaffection. <laughs> and uh, and uh, 
We sent a letter back saying, no, it's just to stop the gob getting on the keyboard. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was Paul Morley, actually. Oh, because he loves a good uh, yeah, representation. Yeah, he, he, he was into uh, all that stuff. Yeah. We it, became friends, actually. Uh-huh. He's quite interesting. And then he later uh, was instrumental in the Z-Zone. Z-T-T. Yeah, Z-T-T label. Yeah. And all those acts with Trevor Horn. So another thing about Devo just made me think of also they're from a similar landscape in terms of their environment. Yes, yeah, so yeah. very post-industrial, uh, depressed area. What did what are they famous for making in rubber? Akron. Yeah, rubber was the rubber. Of, rubber, I think, was the big deal. Yeah. Oh my god, they should have made more of that. <laughs> they should have been wearing rubber outfits. I know, I know exactly. I mean, they already weren't breathable, right? So why not just go the full Monty? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so image was a very important thing to you, and um, I, I was watch rewatching the uh, the doc about Heaven Seventeen doing penthouse and pavement back to back and uh i think glenn was talking about how you used to wear like fun fur jackets and yes. all that sort of thing yeah because that was very much the punk glam thing right yeah. yeah and what was the attitude of people around that time when you would walk down the street in certain neighborhoods when you were wearing that stuff well the interesting thing is we um i was the most glam glenn liked dressing up like a lady occasionally yeah. but only occasionally yeah but normally he was just kind of like he's a good looking guy and he's sure. got all the girls and everything. <laughs> not that I'm je- not that I'm jealous. <laughs> uh, didn't get all the girls. Um, there was enough to go around. Yeah, and I'm sure you did just yeah, fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but I was known as, shall we say, the person who didn't give a fuck. Um, not as uh, not in an aggressive way. I used to wear. <laughs> My parents must have been in a living hell. Now my now my children are adults, twenty one, twenty four. Yeah, uh, I know what they must have been going through, and, uh, <laughs> and I'd leave the house. I always used to live near the city centre. Yeah, so I would walk to the venues that were the the few clubs there were that we could go to, and normally uh, I would be wearing five inch heel platform boots. Nice, yeah. Um, and I suppose now you look back in it and go, it's very kind of, uh, you know, kind of like kiss or something. But uh-huh. I wasn't wearing that kind of makeup. Sure. I didn't wear makeup, funnily enough. Yeah. It wasn't about a kind of uh, androgyny thing. Right. It was more influenced by Bowie, I suppose. Sure, and, and a flamboyancy. And really. a flamboyance. Yeah. And also, I think I always take that. I mean, because I'm not a very subtle dresser. Yeah. And to me, it's. I've noticed. Uh, yeah, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and to You'll me, catch your death of cold. Uh, I, well, I know. Thankfully, that jacket's uh, <laughs> nice and warm. And the Ubers are just adorable. To oh, door. oh, that's okay. <laughs> that was the health warning sound yeah, about yeah, my exactly. uh, yeah, wardrobe. But I always uh, take that as uh, sort of um, just a feeling of excitement about looking a certain way and or yeah. embracing the options that we have available to us with clothing. And that's not the same case for everyone. Some people like a nice beige, you know, outfit, but that's fine. Whatever works for yeah, them. Yeah, so yeah, which is nice. To get back to uh, Human League, so you, you, you have your own space that you're working in, mm. and you can work in that all the time, anytime, and you get into recording. And could you describe a little bit about how you first got your first tape recorder? Yeah, well, the thing that inspired us, as soon as we got a little bit of disposable income and a credit rating, so we, <laughs> so we could actually you know, sign higher purchase agreements, so yeah. we're 18, whatever. Yeah. Um, I bought that synth there, the Korg 700S. Oh, wow. Okay, yeah. yeah. And uh, Ian bought the System 100. Yeah. We had an epiphanal moment. Uh, again, In I think it was NME that this article was in. It was a two-page article by Brian Eno. You know, he was our hero. Right. Roxy uh, Music was very yeah, uh, impactful yeah, yeah, yeah. to you, From, I'm sure. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, and we were heartbroken when he left for Oxford Music. In fact, I don't think they were ever as good after uh-huh. that, personally. But he did this article where the gist of it was rock and roll is, you know, as in guitar-based stuff, is is old hat. Okay, sure. And all you need nowadays, it was being a bit kind of provocative, you know, uh, as you're on provocateur. Sure, but, yeah. Um, the, the gist of it was all you need f- to be a, a, a band of the future is a synthesizer, a microphone, and a two-track, well, he said a Revox. So sure. we couldn't afford a Revox. <laughs> How much was a Revox? Uh, they were about, they were a lot of money for the time, so it's like five or six hundred quid. Oh, which is quite a lot. In a lot those, in those days. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, but you could get something pretty close to it with the sound-on-sound sound capability, so you could bounce from track to track. Sure, okay. And add to it. Right. By putting an input in the back. Yeah. So that's how you build up a kind of multi-track effect. Being Boiled, our first release, which yeah. is 40 years old this year. No. What are we talking about? Oh, wait, it's 42, right? No, no, 42 years old. Yeah, yeah. 42, yeah. Jesus Christ. <laughs> okay, right, right when it turned 2020, uh, everything got really surreal. Uh, with the da- no, you know, with the dates exactly. and everything, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're past Blade Runner now, aren't we? Oh yeah, we um, are. That's right. Yeah. Uh, what I was going to say? Yeah. So anyway, that so that's why Bean Boiled was in mono because we didn't even have a mixing desk. <laughs> we just yeah. took him at his word, and he was right uh, in a in a sense. And sure. of course, as soon as we had the option and a bit more money, as soon as we signed with Virgin, we we uh, decided to spend all our advance on on uh, buying uh, proper equipment, getting a mixing desk and yeah. a, and a, and a eight track. Um, one inch Ampex recorder and yeah. uh, etc. And we thought this was like we thought we were the Beatles. Yeah, well, I can imagine. You know, especially at the time. I mean, now it's hard. Sometimes it's hard for people to imagine what with, what with the capabilities we have with Logic, etc. But I mean, to actually own the means of production and everything back then, our and... creativity was always from the outset based around the idea of um, recording. Yeah. And building up arrangements yeah. using recording. So we we're more of a studio band. Well, QED, you know. We're, we're really more of a studio band. Yeah. Uh, than, uh, and performing live was fun, don't get me sure, wrong. yeah, yeah. But really our passion was about being in the studio and, and creating new forms. Right. And you had a manifesto as well, right? It's yeah. <laughs> funny. Yeah. yeah. I think there's a clip of Phil reading it from one of the documentaries. Yeah, yeah, so I, can't, I, mean, I can only vaguely remember some of it, which was like, um, uh, you know, we had it pinned to the wall. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, constant so, reminder of sort uh, yeah, of what you were after. Yeah, constant reminder of yeah. not to drift off topic. <laughs> only, se- only synthesizers and voices allowed. Uh-huh. Uh, no lyrics about love. <laughs> Yeah, uh, n- not allowed to use the word love, and there was a the list of various words we weren't allowed to use. Sure, yeah, no uh, blues, no, oh, definitely no <laughs> blues. God, no, no boogie, no blues, no yeah, boogie, yeah, yeah. no boogie, woogie, no blues. <laughs> and now, how uh, long was it until you got a drum machine, or were you doing all the stuff on tape with the two synthesizers? Most of the um, of the rhythm tracks that we created were created from the hardware sequencer on here. Oh, okay. So every time we wanted a kick drum, we'd create it from scratch. Every time we wanted a snare, we'd create it from scratch. Right. There were no samplers, sure. no uh, no MIDI. So the first drum machine we we got was a doc, was a Doctor Rhythm. He had some use, but it was limited use because sure. you couldn't really synchronize it. And uh, yeah. 
And anyway, the sounds we were getting off this were much better. And you could create them yourself. Yeah, and, and you could create them ourselves. Yeah. So, um, but then the big change came with Hem 17 when we got the first Lindrum. And I still think it's the best drum machine. Yeah. I've ever used, and I've got, I've used them all pretty much. <laughs> uh, uh, I just, in terms of functionality, sure. it's never been surpassed. And the sound as well. And the sound is great. I remember seeing something where that's the drum machine that's on sexual healing, and it's also on, you know, name any number of like very, very out there synth that's records right. or something. Yeah. And so, Prince, of course. Of course, the signature Prince sounds, yeah. which were amazing. Key thing about it was you could tune all the individual samples up and down and this all sounds basic stuff now but at the time there were no samplers you created human league right yeah. and would you say co-created it with the other two guys yeah, yeah. yeah so then you had and you had this well it was me and ian who created oh the human uh, right league. right that's right and, and then, then we you... got phil in to be the lead vocalist sure and you chose him based on his haircut right he, he was my best friend at, at school we were like bestest bestest buddies okay. uh, for a couple of years our first kind of half-serious attempt to make a band was called The Future. And it was basically Soundscapes with uh, our friend Addie Newton, who went on to form Clock DVA, kind of mumbling over the top a bit like um, the guy from The Doors, you know? Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and when we took, it, uh, took this stuff into the record companies, uh, most of them said, you know, go away and write some songs. Sure. So, and that's pretty politely. So, uh, uh, and we said, well, that's going to be kind of difficult because Addy can't actually sing yeah. uh, any kind of recognizable melody. So uh, we had to sack him. And then we were looking for, we thought we're going to, you know, always had this idea of the name The Human League, which was actually came from a board game uh -huh. that, that somebody bought me for my birthday. And one of the scenarios is like one of those, it wasn't really a board game. It was like a strategy game. Oh, okay, They're quite sure. tedious. Yeah. Like a Dungeons uh, & Dragons kind yeah, of thing? Yeah, kind of thing, but okay. set in the future. Sure. And one of the scenarios was called The Rise of the Human League. So oh, okay. It felt like a self-fulfilling prophecy, <laughs> right? Um, anyway, so we decided to call it The Human League and give it a decent stab at writing some actual pop songs. Sure. And you were pop and, fans. And, uh, yeah, we're pop fans, you know. So, uh, we liked avant-garde as well, but we liked and yeah. all in, and disco and everything that wasn't fashionable sure. at the time. Right. Um, and consequently wanted to uh, find a lead singer because we weren't part of the musical scene in Sheffield. Oh, right, right. You weren't we jamming. We didn't play you pubs. Yeah. You yeah. know, we didn't know. We weren't musicians in the traditional sense. Sure. And we didn't hang out with those people. We generally hung out with artists and kind of like graphic designers and photographers and right it really wasn't the sort of like hanging down the what, you know, we were, in fact we weren't really. even interested in musicians uh, <laughs> to put it bluntly so we yeah. didn't have any contacts in that world sure and what's more they hated us so we i said well I, you know my mate phil from school he looks great no idea if he can sing yeah uh but he looks fancy it looks like a pop star yeah is that any good <laughs> so i uh said yeah go on then we'll invite him down see what so we played him the backing track to Being Boiled and, and and said, do you want to put it on a cassette? And do you want to said, do you want to go away and write some lyrics yeah. to it and, you know, and melody? So all right. So came back the following week and he, he uh, started off with, listen to the voice of Buddha. Yeah. I mean, we were all listening to similar kind of music. Sure. Our tastes were similar. Yeah. So I knew there was a good chance. Whilst it wasn't the world's greatest voice, 
it was interesting. Yeah, it has and the character. lyrics were completely <laughs> indecipherable to me, <laughs> uh, which I thought was cool. Yeah, and anything um, that makes you go, wait, wait, hang on, what's what's, yeah, what's, what's going? Yeah, what's going on? Sake. Yeah, yeah. For- <laughs> and he had to explain to me. And he, he's admitted since then that he, uh, it was a kind of uh, metaphorical attempt to uh, intertwine about four different religions into some kind of social commentary, uh, kind of post-punk or mid-punk kind of anger. I think directed towards his dad, who he didn't get on with. Uh, it kind of makes sense looking back on it now. Yeah, sure. Our effort was always to leave enough interpretation wriggle room yeah. that um, one of the things we love so much about Bowie was the fact that it, it was not immediately obvious a lot of the time what his songs were about, right? Um, because he was, you know, we know now he was using the Burroughs cut-up technique. In other words, you create a framework in which you can populate with your own meaning. Yes, right. And exactly. we always liked that approach. Yeah, right. Because his songs mean a lot to me, but I couldn't tell you what a lot of them well, specifically and, mean. You know, and, like it, like in terms of logic. And, yeah. and specifically, it probably means something different to you than. Everybody else. Exactly right. And the other, the other uh, element of the of the uh, of, of the writing uh, thing is, uh, which again was largely influenced by people like Bowie and and Mark Bowen and stuff yeah. like that, is the idea of onomatopoeia. You know the the idea that how it sounds, yeah, uh, is just as important. It's just as important as the as the cognitive meaning. Sure, I remember the first time I listened to Electric Warrior, which I think was the first T Rex album I got. I think I, my initial reaction was almost like when you watch a really challenging film and you're like, "Wait, this can't possibly be the lyric." Yeah, do you know what I mean? And I don't even know which song it was because now I've loved them so much, so I can't even space that out. But some of the lyrics, if you look at it on paper, you're like, what, "What's the, that's nothing?" What you know? Yeah, but he, he was a he, he's a sound poet. Yeah. He certainly was. Uh, largely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I mean, genius and, and it, with the that's words. That's at the one end of the, well, almost at one end of the, the scale. Yeah. I think Bowie was was a hybrid of, he wanted his, like a puzzle, like, yeah. a, treasure, like a treasure trail. Yeah. You True. know, which, or, or, or if you want to use another metaphor, it's like something that can be unwrapped over time. That was um, always in the back of our minds when we were writing lyrics for the Human League. Yeah. And, M17. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. After a couple records and some tours, you did Susie and the Banshees and then also Iggy Pop, right? Which I'm curious about. So yeah. Susie and the Banshees were essentially contemporaries. What was it like opening for Iggy Pop, who is a figure that you admired greatly? Um, it's funny, isn't it, thinking about it now. This was 1979. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was his New Values? Yeah, New yeah. Values tour. Yeah. And... We thought he was like a granddad then. <laughs> and look where we are now. Right, right. Yeah. The guy is like immortal. You would not know what age he is by just looking at him. And he's sure. super, super sharp still. Yeah. Possibly even sharper, actually, because mm-hmm. he's taking less drugs, probably. So he was just 
uh, you know, he was what you'd expect, really. He was like a cartoon version of a rock star. Every night before he went on stage, he used to drink a bottle of Jack Daniels in one. Wow. Which is quite impressive. It is quite impressive. That is, I, saw kind of it, I saw it with my own eyes. Yeah, yeah. Um, and maybe would, some other substances. Which would uh, quite, yeah, I don't know what else was going on, but <laughs> that, that impressed me enough. Oh, yeah, uh, certainly, yeah. Uh, not that I ever wanted to replicate oh, it, God, by no, the way, no. no. Which would kind of explain his behavior on stage. He used to, at that time, his, his big uh, kind of uh, signature trick was to climb to the top of the PA stacks yeah. and rock them towards the audience. That's great that he's gauging the uh, the safety of that while well, I full don't, of Jack Would Daniels. you trust somebody who's had a... No, no, a I, I would not. A pint and a half of Jack Daniels? <laughs> no, not at all. To see if this is going to give... To see if this is going to work. He yeah. never did kill anyone, but Jesus Christ. I know, it's remarkable. It would never happen now. In terms of being a sexual animal, you know, we were touring around Europe and we used to joke that it was like drawing the short straw if you happen to have a room next to Iggy. <laughs> because... Um, he used to have he used to have a procurer invite appropriate young ladies back to his um it's not the it's not the hashtag me too generation let's put it that way right sure. uh, and there would literally be a queue oh wow outside his hotel room he's a very busy man uh, yeah well you know he's got Fit in as many as possible. Well, sure, that's right. Because then you got to think bus travel that eats up a lot of the day. Yeah, right? and you got the drinking time. But the interesting thing was that his procurer, yeah, was the China girl. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. Oh, that's wild. Yes. Wow. Uh, I didn't know that because I yeah. thought they were a couple. Or... Well, apparently not. Wow. Well, maybe. Maybe they well. were. Maybe they were. Everybody, I don't know. People That's, have different arrangements kind of all the, the time. This yeah. uh, next level sexual <laughs> politics is beyond my comprehension. Sure, sure. And when you're that busy, too. I mean, so a lot of us don't understand what that's like. And um, also, the, the, the remarkable thing is with his ingestion uh, habits that he was able to perform like that. Because that, not everyone can. No, I can't. I never could. After a bottle, tried, tried, it, tried it a couple of times on a much milder scale, and it just doesn't work for me. <laughs> uh, so, yes, total respect for Iggy and his continual creativity and sure. intelligence. Was he a nice person to tour with? Um, yeah. I found this on the web. What did you? Okay. <laughs> That's good to know. Doing Segmented some research. regression allows for the detection of what? Okay. That's actually just what we were talking about, yeah. too. Are you okay on time? Do you need to Yeah, no, I'm right. No, it's fine. Okay, cool. Uh, no, it, that wasn't an alarm. It was just like... Just some information that yeah, your information watch wants you to know. watch but, wants me to know. <laughs> that's very helpful. So, <laughs> how's it even knowing that I'm talking? Stop. Right, okay. No, maybe it interpreted something about us uh, talking about time. Uh, okay. But also, uh, you had David Bowie proclaim that your band was the sound of the future, right? That's right, yeah. And uh, he came to see us at a pub. <laughs> And then did you know ahead of time that he was coming? No. Okay. It was like 20 minutes before we were due to go on stage, and he turned up with an entourage of about 10. Yeah. I've got a photo of it. Oh, amazing. If you could, uh, I'd love to get I, a copy I, I of it. I don't know where it is, but... I, we'll find it. There yeah, is a, yeah. there, it's on, it's on, on, on the web somewhere. Oh, okay, then. I'll, I'll try um, it down. Which somebody, thank God, took at the time, or else nobody would believe me. Yeah. <laughs> and um, of me chatting to Bowie, smoking a fag, and... Yeah. And um, Coco, his, uh, oh, assistant, his assistant, was there, yeah, yeah, and various other people who had no idea who they were. And this was this was like a dressing room, to if you can imagine it, 
a very traditional rock dressing room. Okay. So it's like graffiti all over the walls, no door on the on, on oh, the dressing sure. room. Right. Stank of beer and piss. Yeah, and, of course, all the foul. And uh, and imagine that happening like ten minutes before you do to go on stage. It's <laughs> right. kind of like it's like if you're a footballer, it's like Pelly turning up. <laughs> you know. <laughs> 10 minutes before you're due to play an important match because yeah. um, no matter how many times you've gone on stage too that, that 10 to 15 minute window before you go on yeah, your brain like, just sort of shuts off well no no we always have a rule with Hem 17 that we you know the hour before we go on is our time right we don't have people in the dressing room you don't want any variables no 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 yeah. it's, a, it's a ritual yeah so uh, those days we were a bit more flexible now it's like plus you didn't have a door I mean you've got to psych you've got to psych yourself up yeah it's all about Peaking at the right time. No, it is. It's about focusing your energy yeah. and everything. So you yeah. don't need people anyway. Any person, really. Even Bowie. I won't <laughs> let Bowie in. I'd let him in now if he turned up. That would be really <laughs> be weird. Fat. You'd be like, uh, I, I can't. Uh, well, he doesn't make that many appearances anymore. Yeah, so, but I'd uh, let Iggy in. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. That's yeah. about yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. I imagine he would bring the energy up in a good way. Yeah. yeah. So then, anyway, just go. Sorry. No, I forgot, one thing I forgot, I forgot to mention about Iggy. Yeah. Because you did ask me. Oh, I do want to know, um, too. Yeah. Any, yeah. He, at the time... I think this was after he'd taken the bottle. Of, uh, <laughs> um, before he was due to go on stage, he said, Martin, uh, you need someone like, uh, you need someone like Margaret Thatcher. You need a strong leader. <laughs> and I'm going, no, Iggy, no, man. <laughs> James, no. Bob Geldof said the same thing as well. Just Did so he? You, just so you know, yeah. That's very interesting. Yeah. I would not have this expected. This is before Band-Aid. Oh, okay, right. He had a, bit, a few different mm. thoughts. Yeah, he's always been a bit of a provocateur no, as well, I, right? I don't think he's a provocateur. I think he's just the other side of the, of the coin. Oh, say. interesting. Yeah. That's very anyway, interesting. So there you go. Um, just my view. Yeah, no, hey, um, look, you know, opinions are opinions, and uh, uh, everyone's entitled to express them. You know, he's a co creator of Survivor. That's one of the other interesting yeah, things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, Iggy was. Was a great guy to. He, but he, he was, a, he was a, a, a fun guy to be with, yeah. Did you ever tour with anyone and were disappointed by them? Yeah. Um, Perubu. Really? Yeah. Wow. David Thomas. He was a bit of an arsehole. That's a shame. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he wasn't very friendly. Okay. Yeah. And, sure. and I thought, well, maybe he's just shy or autistic or something. You know, that reminds me, you've worked with a lot of uh, interesting characters through the years, and one in particular, Terrence Trent Darby. Yeah. I'm curious about what your production approach is with people and how, what you do in terms of uh, assessing their personality yeah. and how to mesh with them. Well, that's the most important point. You put your finger on it, you've hit the nail on the head. Okay, great. Um, Beyond, I mean, it's a given that at a certain level, as a producer, you know your shit regarding the studio, well, recording sure. instruments, directing traffic for the engineers, yeah, arrangement, musicality. That's a given, yeah. or else you're never going to get the gig in the first place. <laughs> but the the uh, the real juice is in the psychology of dealing with uh, vocalists, individuals. Okay. At a very early stage of my production career, I decided not to work with bands uh, is all about uh, political intrigue and cliques. Uh-huh. And yeah. I just couldn't be asked with it. It's it, exhausting. It, well, yeah. not just exhausting. It's just like you can't get on with the with the real work. Yeah. Because well, it's that's like, what I mean more I'm not that. I'm just not interested. I find it childish and immature and right. and it's not always about age. It's just it's no. the nature of Bands. So my, my yeah. yeah. So anyway, I decided never ever to work with anything. Uh, the maximum was always a three-person unit. 
<laughs> it's hard to have cliques with three people. That's true. That's true. That's why I've always been involved in a three-person band. You can't see yourself as a victim if you're outvoted two to one. Sure. If you do, you shouldn't be in the band. Right. Bye-bye. Maybe it's not the thing for it's you. It's not the that. thing. Yeah. Whereas if it's five people, two against three, that's a big problem. Yeah. Or if there's a married couple in the band. Oh, yeah. Or yeah, like yeah that. And, yeah, that's and <laughs> even worse. Yeah. So, um, no, we never had that sort of problem. Anyway, so uh, that evolved quickly into not working with bands at all. Yeah, sure. Uh, right, uh, and you had uh, some great success with a, a, sing, a solo singer with Tina Turner. Yeah, yeah. No, solo know, singers were, were always my thing. Yeah. So getting inside the head of singers at different stages of their career yeah my experience is that um the more experienced the singers are the nicer they are actually. oh sure and the more accomplished i imagine uh, well they have well, less right? to prove you know yeah it's like they're confident in, in their talent and their approach and what do you think about the thing that i i always feel that the most <laughs> the most successful people the most uh consistently creative people are generally the nicest ones it's yeah. the, the shits in the business that you meet are really the sort of pretenders the sort of be to yeah it's it's it, it generally based on insecurity yeah i mean sort of arrogance is based on insecurity in my view there's nothing in there's no there's, there's nothing in it for people who are successful to 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 be arrogant assholes what benefit are they going to get from it? Right, and it's not what they got into the business to begin with. About well, some people, is... I mean, some people get into things to, because they want an element of, of status and they want to be feared or they want to be. Uh... Yeah, but I mean, generally, that's more in the admin kind of behind the scenes no, thing. That's true. I'm sure. I think. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure. You know, I'm fascinated by, uh, you know, the autobiographies and the biographies of uh, famous Hollywood stars. For oh, instance. certainly. Yeah. Any in and particular? The different types of people. Um. Yeah, I mean, I've, I know quite a lot about it. It's something I'm passionate about, not that, passionate. Well, I love I love biographies about. and autobiographies yeah. too. I mean, you know, I'm very into people's stories, and especially when there's is very specific types of careers that are very difficult to get into. You have to be driven by something. Right? Yeah, um, I, I mean, I'm very interested in the kind of renegade type, the ones who ride the the the, the, the manage to straddle the two horses. Of, oh, sure. of success and edginess right and you know i thought i'd like to think in some small way that that's well, the kind of thing that i'm involved i, I in. was going to say that and I, i'm always interested yeah. in how many uh, people manage to do that you've never done any record that you didn't want to do oh no i never would in fact when people approach me um to produce for them yeah, I, in fact, I decided round about the turn of the millennium that I wasn't going to do any more production, because uh, firstly, largely the um, the uh, resources weren't there to do it properly. Oh, okay, sure. This is when budget started to go yeah. away. Yeah, and, yeah, and and you know it was like not just budgets, but time. Oh, sure. Money pays for time. That's yeah, that's exactly. And right, time yeah. is critical, so everything started becoming about can you do it cheap and fast. We all know that equation of cheap, fast, and good. <laughs> yeah, you can only have two or three. Uh, yeah. At any so time. I just yeah. said, I just said to myself, look, you know, I've I've had a good run. That's fine. I know I can make a lot of money for people, but if they're not willing to do it on my terms, that's fine too. Not that I want to be paid a huge amount of money, but the, the it's just not in the zeitgeist now. People aren't going to be doing that stuff. Yeah. Unless you're producing for, I don't know, Jay Z or something. Somebody who's got an artist, uh, an artistic and authentic. Uh, heart, yeah. As an artist, 
if they approached me and they had a, the right budget, I would be interested in working with them. Sure, and there's nothing wrong with making money, especially if, no, if, no, if no, the no. end product is going to be. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I mean, I've my, you know, my my name appears on sixty million records, so yeah. I'm not. I'm not I'm not complaining. No, of course. And to let's let people know what some of those are. And the first one really that you did as an outside producer is, to my knowledge, right, was the Tina Turner record. No, it wasn't the first one. Oh, it wasn't. Uh, I did an album for a, a, a dance group who were on the TUV on Kenny Everett's show, actually. Oh, oh uh, hot, you did the Hot, hot Gossip. Gossip record? Yeah. I'm obsessed with Hot Gossip. I love them. Okay, I that's why the, they covered I did Gage their album. <laughs> there were cover versions of... Yeah, like a bunch of... Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I produced that. <laughs> that was my first production. Did Perry Lister sing on that? Yeah. Okay. I, she's fascinating, too, because she's in the Fade to Grave video, the Chauffeur video, yeah, yeah, yeah. and then was with Billy Idol. I was I mean, kind of in love with all of them. I can imagine. Uh, yeah. They're, they're all women. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. No, I love them. Uh, for my dance night, I've used a lot of their footage. Is that right? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. They, I call them the video drum dancers, just to, as a goof, because I use so much footage from the Kenny Everett show. Yeah. Have you seen the... Uh... There, there are videos for a couple of the songs. Oh, yeah. Produced. Yeah, exactly. The one where they're all dressed as um, fair, fairground horses and stuff like that. That's I think really, so, yeah. Because I have really all, wild. every time I could get any copy of the, I mean, I've downloaded, you know, torrented every copy of the Kenny Everett show that I could find right, and right, uh, right. use their stuff. Well, and it was Arlene Phillips who went on to do exactly, loads yeah. of, uh, well, Cats and all that That's stuff. right. And the Village People movie. I mean, she needs to die in hell for that by the way <laughs> have you so seen cats the movie. the movie no i haven't I oh have my to. god well I'm, 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 I'm on the i'm on the uh the uh, voting uh, oh okay sure, roster for, for bafta okay sure uh, yeah, yeah. so i get all the movies and, uh, uh-huh. and all but anyway i got invited to the actual oh, premiere and, <laughs> jesus christ that must have been a joyous occasion everyone must have, been have you read that there's a great blog uh this this guy um Decided to take mushrooms before going to see it. Oh, I saw the headline. I didn't yeah. watch. I didn't oh, read you've got to read it. It's, I have to read it. It's that. a series of tweets yeah. that he did whilst he was watching it. <laughs> it's one of the funniest things. He said, he said he'll never be able to get his burnt into his head forever. <laughs> the horror of it. <laughs> That's incredible. I can't wait to look at yeah. that. Yeah. It's one of the worst films ever made. Uh, wow. In fact, it's so bad. Yeah. It's not even off the clock and back on again as a cool, oh, as a yeah. cool kind of. Uh, oh, you Disaster know, plan, kind uh, of. Uh, plan, plan, plan nine, nine from outer space. Yeah. It's not that. Wow. It's a really, really just the worst film I've ever just seen. Just aggressively mediocre. Uh, yeah, ag- and- no, no, aggressively. No, not even mediocre. Oh, okay. Terrifying. Okay. In, yeah. a, in a totally unpleasant way. Oh, now I'm really stirred up. I mean, to the see music is this. terrifying in a totally unpleasant <laughs> way. The performances are. Yeah. The CGI is the worst I've ever seen. Some of it's missing, right? The, there's like uh, human hands. There are, the... there, are, there are certain dance sequences where the human face on the CGI cat uh, doesn't quite sync with the movements of the head. And Amazing. Stuff like. It's like. This is a car crash of the uh, of the most spectacular proportions. Right, it set a new standard for I mean, sure. You, you have to see. I do some of it. I, oh, I, I do. Yeah. When the first time I tried to to watch it, I got three minutes in. <laughs> Let's put it that way. I timed uh, it, but then you got to, invited to the premiere, and then yeah. then it, then I had to go and suffer and, through and, the entire and, thing. And you can't I can't get out because you're in the middle of an audience. Yeah, right. It? Exactly. Arlene's ten feet away, and you don't want to. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, I'm going to have to see it. Hopefully, I can catch it in the theaters. Although it might be out by this point. I guess I'll enjoy it at home anyway. Yeah. I think if ever a 
uh, film deserved to go straight to video. That's it. <laughs> and well, in fact, straight in the bin. Oh yeah, yeah. And yeah. of course, there's a funny tie between Andrew Lloyd Webber and Hot Gossip as well. Anyway, because of I Lost My Heart to a Starship Trooper, <laughs> right, featuring Sarah Brightman. I wonder what appealed uh, appealed to her about <laughs> about him. Maybe it's his good looks. I think that's what it is, probably. Because yeah. I mean, I'm sure that that just that dwarfed anything else, the music, yeah. etc. <laughs> this is a man who took a first class flight from America to vote for austerity in the House of Lords. Are you kidding me no. now? To explain to folks who don't know what austerity is. All oh, right. Oh God. Really? Well, just a quick. So uh, basically, it's a right wing. Uh, uh, it's a right. It's a right wing. Uh, thing brought in by the conservative government when the banking crash happened okay how long ago was it now i don't know it seems like oh, forever but yeah but it was, uh, yeah. when the banking crash happened uh, uh it the conservatives in britain said right well we all need to tighten our belts now oh yeah and we're all in this together <laughs> and basically we're going to cut back on public spending massively right, right. In other words, the poor are going to pay for this. Yep, we're going to scoop away uh, all the stuff. Uh, yeah, for them. exactly. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, that's so what, that's great. So he took that's what austerity class. is, and it's still in effect now. Well, it's good to know that about him. I didn't know that that was his uh, yeah. political leaning. And he voted to to cut. I think it was to cut ten pounds off off of. Yeah. Anyway, he's a hypocrite. Yeah. Well, that's vile. Yeah. But so you produced uh, the hot gossip record, and I've been meaning to get a copy of that for a while. So now this is good inspiration. Uh, it's on, so. I think it's on, it might it might even be on Spotify or something. Oh, great! I'll, I'll look that up. I'm not really the, sure after I leave and stuff. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so then, but then you work with Tina Turner, and she had not made her full comeback yet, and the single no. we worked on together. I w- make I um, at the same time as we started Heaven Seventeen and did Penthouse and Payment. Because we'd kind of committed ourselves to being a production company called British Electric sure. Foundation, and myself I, and Ian at this time. And actually, let me, let's me let get into that first, because I think that the story of how Heaven 17 came about is really instructful for people, especially people in the artistic realm, who might have hit a speed bump in the road and not know that there's a way around it. In that yeah. Heaven 17 came about because you were thrown out of your own group. Yes. <laughs> no, well, I tell them they couldn't. It's like Jack Black, you know, oh, yeah, in, no. in uh, School of Rock. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, no, no, yeah, I told them they, they couldn't because it was my group. Yeah, right. I mean, Fair it, enough. You know, and we right. brought Phil in. So that was it. it. What I only realized later, and they admitted later on, the record company and Bob Last, who was managing us at the time, yeah. is that they were plotting this to get All to along. to get to, well, I mean, certainly I mean, from no, at least a year before it happened. Meaning they knew your reaction would yeah. probably yeah. be. Yeah, no, they, they were plotting uh, uh, because what they wanted to do was to create uh, two uh, sources of revenue from one. <laughs> right, because you're already signed. Yeah, we're already signed. Yeah. So um, their idea, which was probably correct, is that uh, we were we were the brains behind the kind of music part of it and the studio part of it. But what they wanted is for Phil to be a, a true pop star and earn them loads of money. Okay, yeah. I mean, loads of money. Yeah, yeah. And, it, you know, to their eternal credit, it worked. It did, yeah. It did break my heart at the time. I can imagine. Because he was my best friend. Yeah. And it came as a bolt out of the blue. Right. Uh, there was no inkling that was going to – there was always kind of um, – Some unrest. There was – well, no, there, there, there was tension because the record company were wanted us to – be more successful, you know, and they wanted to make a, you know, we were in 
uh, we were unrecouped, you know, oh, from sure. all the tour support. You used to pay to go on tours in those days. Oh, right. Right. Yeah. So that would be basically they paid the headline. Yeah. Or, yeah. Or yeah. Exactly. To so, get you on there. Yeah. So, uh, and, and they wanted, the, they wanted, you know, daddy wanted his cat back, you yeah, know, right. in the words of Diva. <laughs> and, uh, you don't want to go to the barrel room. No, no, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, anyway, so it came as a shock. And, uh, but the interesting thing was, um, and uh, to again to Bob Last credit, yeah, he suggested. Have you thought about the idea of creating a production company? So we actually signed with Virgin Records as a production company, oh right, yeah. with the right to present to them up to six different acts a year. So we'd be like wow. a, like a mini Motown or yeah, something. yeah, sure, stock Aiken Water. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, that, well, of, uh, before that, before well, all no, that. no, I mean like yeah, before, but this that's is like, that's yeah, the model, yeah. yeah. Um, and and that we would write and produce everything for them, and we create different band identities or solo artists, whatever. And it sounded very exciting, so that's what of we course. did. Uh, of course, the first thing that we did was yeah. um, M17, and it became so successful uh, so quickly they ended up taking all our time up. But anyway, as a uh, manifesto for the production style, we released an album called Music of Quality and Distinction Volume 1, which, of course, implied there were going to be further volumes. Sure. Uh, which was uh, basically taking electronic versions of uh, famous songs, so kind of really unusual versions, and, and uh, putting uh, famous guest artists over the top. And, and that's how we met Tina Turner. And then you had, uh, what, Sandy Shaw, Gary yeah, Glitter. Yeah, that's right. But the one that really caught people's imagination, was particularly Turner, Roger yeah. Davis, who was Tina's manager at the time, right. was Ball of Confusion. I still think it sounds great. Oh, yeah, it's cool. fantastic. Uh, yeah. Her voice it, with electronics. Uh, is... Yeah, that, it just worked. And, uh, yeah. uh, you know, the classic story, she came into the studio and says, where's the band? And I pointed at the fair light and said, <laughs> it's there. <laughs> oh, by the way, do you know I'm a character in the Tina the Musical? No, I didn't know that. I want to see that. I haven't yeah, seen yeah, that Yeah, I'm yet. actually a character in it. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. it's kind of... A f- quite flattering I, I, except it looks nothing like me <laughs> i just want to say that and uh i didn't dress like that either okay i okay. kind of looked like a bit of a kind of proto goth <laughs> and i never dressed like that but anyway your look at the time would be sort of the business suit look that we see with heaven 17 no not not that time it was more like just you know i suppose they had to juice it up somehow oh yeah, yeah well of course yeah they have to get get the, into yeah, the audience yeah, yeah, the, the of impression it's, of, like, it's not meant to be a documentary you know? right they it's want to get across the idea that she's working with something new and, and different yeah right? exactly yeah exactly yeah so and uh, but the weird thing is they have a scene the scene that i'm in yeah i'm like the kind of i'm kind of the light relief after some quite heavy stuff oh yeah uh, so i'm like so stuff, real yeah. laughs when it says uh, when uh, roger da- the roger davis character says have you not heard of Heaven 17, and the audience laughs, and I go, how dare you laugh? <laughs> what do you mean? That's quite good. I like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, it's quite, it is like quite that. funny, so I'll let yeah. them off. And it's, it's good publicity for me. What they've done, and it's very naughty, I think, is they have, uh, for the purposes of uh, the um, dramaturge, uh-huh. shall we say, they have conflated ah. um several things into one gotcha. which is the studio scene so i'm in i'm in the studio behind a synth yeah opposite me is terry Britton, who i'd never met <laughs> and had no contact with right yeah where's graham lyle 
No way. No. And we are writing, what's love got to do with it? With, I had not, nothing, nothing to, to do, do with that. that. Right, yeah. So, you know, it's like, uh, to say it's been approximate with the truth is... Uh, generous. Uh, generous. Yeah, yeah. sure. Because so then you uh, worked on part of the Private Dancer album. Yeah. Yeah. So I did Let's Stay Together. And that was a big hit. Oh, it's a, itself. Massive. the biggest selling 12-inch record in American history uh, who, at the time. Right. Pretty quickly after you separate from Human League, you're still working at the studio you're doing the night shifts, and then Human yeah. League is doing the day shifts. Yeah, right. Well, we're, we're, they're writing there, and we're writing Penthouse and Payment. So <clears> you <throat> would see each other every once in a while? No, or? no, no. Deliberately didn't. I was not in a good mood, <laughs> but I managed to convert that anger into a uh, fireball of creativity. Right, because you did the entirety <clears throat> of Penthouse and Payment within how long? Six weeks or something. Well, it was kind of like an arms race. We wanted to get our record records. A yeah. single album out before they did. Right. Because we thought we'd steal a march on them. So we were incredibly motivated. The first thing we recorded was Wichita Lineman, which is like a kind of test piece for Glenn. But the first song we wrote was Fascist Screw Thing, written and recorded in, in like 10 days. You know? That's another great aspect, too, about owning the means of production and having yeah, your own studio exactly. and everything, too, instead of having like waiting around and exactly. getting, hiring a studio, which would cost exactly. loads. And so Glenn comes back into the picture. He lived in London as a, doing photography and then moved back. Well, he was, a, he was actually in a band called uh, 57 Men, which became Wang Chung. Oh, wow, that's right. Okay, I forgot about that. I'm a quite So a he Wang was Chung the lead fan. singer of Wang Chung before they got the other guy in. <laughs> Isn't that weird? That is so weird. Yeah, that's yeah. wild. But they they thought they were going nowhere. Oh, okay. So uh, at that time, so Glenn, as soon as I asked him, would he fancy you know, starting a new band with me? Because we'd right. always been best mates. I said, yeah, sure. You know, within two weeks, we'd recorded a fascist screw thing. And then it was out pretty quickly after that. Yeah. Yeah, and then it did really well. Yeah. Uh, well, it didn't do as well as it should have done because it was banned on Radio 1. Oh, yeah, that's right, because of political content. Yeah. The climate at that time was moving far into the right, yeah. like said before. Oh, yeah. 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 Sort of overarching concept of Penthouse and Pavement, although I know I heard somewhere that you guys said it's not a concept record. but It, it seems, is a concept record. That's what I thought, yeah. Because, kind of. Yeah. It, of well, the general idea was um, we're all socialists, you know, we're all... Um, Come from the Socialist Republic of South Yorkshire, <laughs> and uh, you know our, our parents were all uh, steelworkers and trade unionists, yeah. and so we wanted to point out the iniquity of uh, the desperate. We all we wanted to create a metaphor for the uh, haves and have-nots, basically. So that was the central premise, and so some of the songs were about that. Some of the songs on the second side are less about that because some of them were written for the next Human League album. The real new direction was the first side of the album. The concept, too, of having like the band appear as a corporation. Interesting question. As noted in the intro, Martin and I were planning on meeting up in the next week or so to finish this chat, but we never got the chance to. So we ended up doing a Zoom call at the end of December 2020. We've always been very keen on a kind of dry, ironic approach, incorporating some level of humor. Uh, into what we do. I mean, humour is probably not the right word. Irony. Things have to have a kind of twist yeah. to, keep, to keep us interested. And so when the split happened, um, part of the kind of master plan that, that Bob Last had obviously figured out um, 
as a fait accompli, really, yeah. to a certain extent, was to um, invite myself and my wife, my wife, as was then, uh, up to Edinburgh to to have a few days to kind of discuss possibilities because he wanted to manage uh, myself and Ian as well as um, uh, as well as the Human League and. Um, you know, I've always had a soft spot for Bob, uh, um, despite the fact, obviously, he helped manufacture the split. I didn't have any kind of resentment at all. When he manufactured the split, was this as a result of growing tension within the band? As you know, I mean, I can't remember. Uh, you know, you know that I've been writing my autobiography, right? Yeah, I'm looking um, forward to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I've finished the first draft now, and that's. So there's a, a huge chapter about this, laying it out in detail exactly what happened. So there's no more confusion. Oh, good. <laughs> uh, but I can I can praise it by saying some of the, the the kind of factors that went into the split happening only became kind of revealed to me when I was thinking about it in detail in retrospect. So to say that there was tensions rising in the band was. You know, kind of true, I suppose, uh, but not. I, I didn't. It still felt like it was us versus the world, rather than any kind of um, forces that were tearing us apart. Not the typical rock band issue. Yeah, I mean, it, I mean, there was more and more kind of, uh, should we say, soft pressure being applied by um, the record company via Bob mainly to come up with hits. You know, uh, uh, as you would expect. You know, you don't you don't think it's ever going to end up in anything serious. It's just like it's what you what you expect from a record company. Sure, bad day at uh, the office or something like that. But essentially, yeah, like, yeah. That, that, that that sort of thing. So there was more, uh, you know, niggly little arguments really in advance of the split. But um, I mean, pathetic things. You know, sure. Like, <laughs> who left the who who left the electric fire on and. You know, <laughs> And and uh, 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 just just daft things, you know. Uh, and me and Phil are like brothers, you know. Uh, and uh, families often argue, you know. It's that simple. But looking back on it, for my autobiography, it now seems obvious that there were other factors at play, namely that there was no way that we were going to make enough money back just by touring. Um, and and it, uh, uh, if we if if that didn't convert into record sales, sure. Because you know uh, people uh, find it hard to believe now, but back in the seventy late seventies and you know, m- most of the eighties, you had to pay to get onto tours as as a support act. So you didn't actually make any money until you were a headliner. In Britain, anyway. I don't know if it's the same in America. Actually, you know what? Not only was it the case in America, I found out something horrible about Bon Jovi getting Skid Row to sign over a percentage of their songwriting royalties Shit. forever to get on the first Shit. tour. Well, you know, that's where this whole thing about 360-degree deals has come from now. You know, it's like we need a cut of everything if we're going to sign you up. You know, that's what a lot of unscrupulous labels do now anyway. But yeah. um, everything's a negotiation in any case. But, the, you know, the tension was generated um primarily i now realize 
because of what I had kind of forgotten has been a kind of minor thing. But, uh, what happened was that uh, Adrian had been working on Phil to become a full member of the band. Oh, okay. Right, uh, before he became a full member of the band. And then one day we had a band meeting, um, which Adrian was um, present for, uh, where Phil came out with the uh, idea that Adrian should be a full-time member of the band and he should get a quarter of everything. So we'd always divided myself, Ian and Phil, thirds each for publishing and, and, and mechanicals, right? Mm-hmm. So, And then all of a sudden, Phil was proposing that Adrian gets a quarter of everything thereby diluting our shares, right? Right, and also he didn't really play a part in the songwriting process. No, he, right? didn't, he didn't write any music. He didn't have any part of that. He just basically put a few slides together and did, did it well, to be fair to him. But uh, And, you know, it just felt wrong to me and, and to Ian as well. So we, we kind of vetoed it, as you would expect. Um, and that I, now looking back, I think that may have been the blue touch paper that lit with a very long fuse <laughs> uh, that led to the split. That gave leverage to the record company and to Bob to kind of separate Phil from the band. Right, and that's a common tactic, right, with labels. They go after the yeah. singer, and they figure that they can then mold the singer more how they want. Yeah, but even even more kind of Machiavellian is the fact that they, they also wanted to, you know, get two bands for the price of one, you know. Interesting that they had the foresight to see the value of that. I think, I think it was quite clever. I mean, I have to give them kudos for that. Um, but the collateral damage was my my psyche you know you know you and phil have a very strong relationship again but i imagine that for a very long time you did not yeah well don't know how strong it is now i mean we 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 made up uh about 15 years ago and um but he's i mean he's gone back off radar again and has done for like the last six seven years okay yeah he's uncontactable really so, oh that's that's a that's a tricky one to deal with with a friend isn't it well it's not tricky for me so i mean uh, you know I, I don't want to be a member of a club that doesn't want me as a member in the words of Groucho marx uh you know it's it, it's a pity and I, I do miss him but you know he, he must do what he must do you know yeah it's the same with ian marsh you know it's not i can't come i don't i neither want to nor can control what people want to do you know they 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 pick their own paths i mean i think the thing is with phil uh i mean i hear on the grapevine various things glenn uh has often um tried to act as a kind of go-between uh not i mean no i, I i'm listen my telephone number is the same as it's been since 19 since i first got a mobile right you know, i am so is my email address um Anybody can contact me anytime and I'll respond to them. I never blank anyone. I block people on Twitter. There are articles, but I don't, I, I never, you know, friends uh, or acquaintances, are, I'm always contactable. So um, that's all I can, that's all you can do, isn't it? I've heard from other people that Phil, I, I'm not taking it personally. I just think Phil's very, a, a very private individual and, and, and 
you know, enjoys his own company and doesn't really socialize that much. When you did patch things up, what what brought that about? It was a um, uh, a BBC Two documentary that they were making. Uh, I can't remember what it was called now. Oh, is it the Young Guns one? It could be, yeah. Yeah, it could be. You guys go to the site of the place where you used to rehearse. That's right. Yeah, I know it. It's the one where we're talking to each other on the tram and all that stuff. And that was the first time that we'd met since the split. Wow. Uh, yeah. Well, I guess that makes that, sense because it's not you guys didn't tour, which is another thing I want to talk about. Heaven 17 did not tour. No, we didn't tour, no. So you would never just bump into each other on like a, you know, no, a festival no, bill no. or something like that. No. What were your feelings when you would see them on TV or, you know, hear about them or a friend says, oh, yeah, you know, I went to go see them the other night or something like that? Was it something that, that continually bothered you or were you fine because, you know, you were doing your own thing and you had massive successes, not just with Heaven 17, but with your production work, et cetera? It was uh, uh, of great interest to me for the around about the time of Dare. Um, and then I lost uh, lost interest. It was a off passing interest. I mean, I didn't really, to be honest, I've never even listened to the following albums. I listened to Credo, which I thought was appalling. Um, but no, I, I never listened to. The, I mean, I'm not being uh, you know snarky or anything. I, I, I just lost interest because we were so busy doing what we did. I have to say, I really, really liked Human. But that's more more because I like Jam and Lewis very much. Sure. Um, but I never listened to that album either. Um, I just kind of yeah, I just felt it was like a fantastic thing of its time, but didn't really have much in the way of longevity. So, you know, I mean, yeah, it's that simple, really. Dare was a fantastic album with great songs and... Um, you know, me and Ian had 1% each on retail, so thank you. So when Heaven 17 decided not to tour, was that informed by the uh, touring with the Human League? No, 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 no. Um, we realized, well, two, two things. One is that we'd lost quite, uh, or rather, we were racking up a huge unrecouped debt uh-huh. with Virgin. Um. um uh, which wasn't getting paid back. Um, and and we'd done a kind of stock take of our skills and assets uh, at the split and realised that, you know, we were much more likely to make money uh, and a career by focusing on what we were good at, which is, uh, and what everybody else thought we were good at, this is myself and Ian I'm talking about now, which was um, working in the studio. Um, another factor involved was we didn't, and this included Glenn as well, um, the last thing we wanted to do was to become the traditional, um, <clears throat> you know, recording tour, world cycle, uh, two-year cycle. Right. Uh, like um, we'd seen happen with Simple Minds, uh, Depeche Mode, who were kind of contemporaries. Uh, uh not I'm not decrying their success because they deserved it. Uh, it's just not a lifestyle we wanted to to have. But I think I heard you remark in another interview that you saw what that sort of cycle did to people's lives. Oh, completely! Oh, it, 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 it annihilated them. Mm-hmm. 
And I can completely relate to it. If you're not careful, and this is true throughout the history of uh, recorded uh, late 20th century recorded music in early, yeah. early 21st, is, you know, uh, once the machine starts turning and you become a revenue generating machine, it's in everyone's interest to keep that machine running. Right, right. No matter what's going on, no matter what bad no matter behaviors. What, uh, and, and, you, and the band members just become a more important part of the machine, but they're still just part of that machine. Right. Um, and it's funny, I saw, I saw an interview um, was on, on the other night, a documentary about um, the final part of Elvis's career. And what was completely clear from that is that all the people who have been interviewed, members of his band, his hairdresser, you know, all the people around him were all going, yeah, it's terrible. We saw him decline. And, oh, no. And, and all I kept shouting at the TV was, why didn't you, you know, why didn't you intervene? Right. Thought he was killing himself. And the answer is because they would have been out of a job. The cash cow. Yeah, the cash cow. So anyway, so bands like Simple Minds and uh, Depeche Mode are, uh, you know, the record companies and uh, and the acolytes feed them drugs, keep them going, get them hooked, um, and and uh, make them reliant on a lifestyle which is based around milking them for giant amounts of money. Right, and until one day maybe the popularity dips or something happens and then they're ditch not that that happened to simple minds or depeche mode no. necessarily I mean, but listen some people make a life out of it don't they rolling stones sure i mean they made a, a very sustainable business out of it yeah without and they they uh even being fed drugs they still were able to they even managed to stay <laughs> relatively healthy so they didn't kill themselves you know right right but they're the, the sort of exception in terms of that especially that hardcore lifestyle totally and I've you know I've heard so many autobiographies of uh, people in the rock industry, but also you know people like comedians, touring comedians, and it's just like you know it's constant, uh, constant, um, uh, usually re- uh, involves drugs, external sure. drugs. Break. It's like it's like adrenaline fueled, an adrenaline fueled nightmare. Yeah. Uh, which you can't escape from, you know, because that becomes the that becomes your a your raison d'etre and b how uh, you can't think of another way that you can make money, and even more so today because you mean, you know, you don't really make money off recordings uh, unless you're right at the top of the tree. Uh, you make money off touring, whereas in the past it used to be the touring was a lost leader for CDs or albums or whatever. Right, and if you did well with your sales, you were pretty well set. Yeah, I mean, you could take, you know, you could buy your, you know, your fourteen-room beach house in Malibu and, <laughs> and take take a year off and, and you know and do whatever you wanted. You know, then they end it with uh, then there's no, the other kind of things like Celine Dion buying her castle next to the Hoover Dam, you know, and, <laughs> yeah, uh, that kind of weirdness, and none of that appealed to us. Definitely not to any of us, actually. Yeah. We were more interested in the work. Sure. And also concurrently, MTV sprouting up. Yeah. Exactly. And, you know, we didn't, we, we, we didn't um, skimp on the, 
on the uh, on the budgets for those things. You know, we didn't like, we didn't. It's not like we were being ultra cautious with the, and worried about getting into um, debt with the record company. Yeah, if we thought that it was a worthwhile enterprise, I mean, we spent a huge amount of money on recording in the best studios in London. You know, I mean, the you know how men are cost three hundred thousand pounds. Oh wow! Then yeah, right. In nineteen eighty four, so that's probably over well over a million now. It's interesting. You've always had a, a that I won't say I don't know if deep suspicion of, but a very clear view of how corporations and yeah larger structures work, and that that sort of shot through your entire career, isn't it? Yeah, well, it's it's ironic because you know I come from a background where I didn't know anyone who had a business. Yeah, not in the corner shop. I mean, literally, we didn't have an entrepreneurial bone in any of our backgrounds sure. it was all being a worker for someone else and the same was true for my peers it wasn't really anything other than a fascination with with, with it all because it was all brand new sure they're, they're, what i liken it to is is like you know the the kind of pioneer spirit of going to a you know, going when you first go into America, you know, and it, it's, the possibilities seem endless. Well, to me, learning about, you know, how businesses work, how the world works from a corporate level just seemed to be very uh, entrancing. Yeah. Uh, and once you weave that into my near communist beliefs, you know. <laughs> Uh, you you end up with an, an interesting admixture of uh, imperatives, and you did a lot of uh, political activism uh, in the eighties. Yeah. You do now as well, but you did some benefit records, right? One with Paul Weller. Yeah, yeah. yeah the, that that came about because um, this is all before you know social media, of course. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, the, the music industry, particularly in you know when you're based in London, is a it, it, it's a small world, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, people know who the uh, once you've had a couple of hits, people know your, you know what what your leanings are, and you know you, you bump into people at similar kind of events. And you know, Red Wedge was the uh, Labour Party's initiative for engaging uh, musicians and uh, people in the entertainment industry. Um, in the mid eighties, and so you know, word spreads. You know, it's the the real irony is that now the BBC has come, BBC has been completely commandeered by, um, shall we say, the right wing uh, elements of the establishment, particularly BBC News. I'm on their I'm in their rolodex of people who are. Uh, a little bit edgy and interesting, and might offer an alternative point of view to the to the stuff that's going on. So I get called up on a regular basis, really. In their, uh, uh, they must have a kind of intranet uh, filing system where they type in keywords, and I come up. <laughs> so you're kind of like what Frank Zappa was to CNN. In uh, the well, kind of not quite that important, but yeah, that kind of thing. <laughs> and. and um, I mean, recently, in fact, two weeks ago, I turned down uh, uh, an opportunity to be on uh, Newsnight, which is, you know, um, the big late night news. 
show in the, uh, on BBC One. The premise for asking me was they wanted someone to uh, talk about the comparisons between life now mm-hmm. uh, from a northern perspective uh, uh, and life in the 80s. So obviously they typed in hashtag 80s, hashtag northern, hashtag, <laughs> <laughs> you know, all that stuff. And yeah. bingo, my name pops up. Yeah. And, um, you know, that sort of stuff. Anyway, I, so I've always had an interest in, not just in corporations, but politics. And sure. I studied it. Well, they're all sort of interweaved though, aren't they? Yeah. I mean, I studied it at school, um, became fascinated and still am uh mystified by the fact that we don't have a written constitution in the UK which enables anybody who's in power to basically do what the fuck they want without an illegal recourse they might get a clap on the wrist you know they've even got things i don't know if it's the same in uh, the american constitution i'm not sure but in 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 the unwritten british constitution you're allowed to slander people in parliament under parliamentary privilege, you're allowed to lie. It would be, oh, that's just, just not the done thing. Yeah. You know, it's terribly, you know, not it's not good enough. It's simply not cricket, you know. Yeah. They think we live in the fucking Victorian age, you know. <laughs> it's just not cricket calling him a murderer and a paedophile. <laughs> but well, he is a murderer and a paedophile, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Yeah, but you mustn't talk about it. Mustn't discuss it. And by yeah, that's the other side of the coin. You know, people who are guilty get away with it. I was curious about your thoughts on John Lydon, who at one point I think on Jukebox Jury deemed Human League's first single the work of quote trendy hippies. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Um, He was actually in print. Uh, He he did a. uh, I think it was a column for. Melody Maker. He's doing the singles reviews. And everybody got some kind of snidey kind of, oh, this track is rubbish, you know. It's all <laughs> and uh, we just got trendy hippies. Yeah. And I, don't, I honestly don't, I honestly believe he'd not even listen to the record. Probably because, because the synthesizer sounds were not exactly, you know, yes. Yeah, but not just that. It was like we, we printed the... Lyrics were on the back, so he probably just looked at the lyrics on the back and went, "Oh, what's this? What's this rubbish with butter <laughs> and all that?" And so um, we met um, when we both performed on the tube. He was with Pill doing Flowers of Romance, and we were doing. It might have even been Tina. I can't remember. Or anyways, one of the Hemis Seventeen things uh, on the tube, which is you know you know the tube. Do you? Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Uh, the Polly Gates hosted it. Yeah, yeah, a time tease thing. Yeah, and um, so we met and gone like got on like a house on fire, um, and we ended up pissed one night in the hotel room, and he was ringing up. Uh, we were for some reason we had the local radio station on in the background while we were talking. And they they had this talent competition. Have I told? Have you heard this story? Before? No, I never heard this story. This uh, sounds great. Yeah, uh, uh, there was this talent competition uh, on the radio, and it was to do um, it's to ring up with impersonations of your favorite pop stars. <laughs> and uh, we persuaded John to ring up and and do an impersonation of John Lydon. <laughs> 
So he rang up uh, Radio Tease or whatever it was, and they asked him what he was going to do. He said, he put on a posh voice, and I'm going to do John Lydon. And he said, okay, go ahead and say I said, flowers of romance, <laughs> have a bargain and buy the single now. And do you know what they did? They cut, they cut it off. <laughs> Idiot. I mean, it's the best piece of radio ever. Why did they cut it off? I think they were probably frightened he was going to swear, maybe. I don't know. But um, what a pity. Anyway, so we met there. We stayed in touch. He turns out he was a big Heaven 17 fan. Uh, he was a big fan, particularly of Let Me Go, which he thinks is a work of genius in his own words. And we, we had quite a lot of shared musical interests. I mean, he, he was an enormous fan, as we were, of uh, Van de Graaff Generator. Uh, and you can actually see some of that Peter Hamill franticness in his voice, I, I think. Um, and also, um, he's, a, he's an enormous reggae fan. Sure. He's got a, a huge vinyl collection of dub plates and 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 uh, you know albums and everything. So um, fast forward a few years, and I I, I wanted him to uh, do a song or two for my next BEF project in 1990, 1991. And um, a friend of ours had got this. Um, uh, recording studio just outside Munich. He was a friend of our old friend, Dirk Hohmeyer, who runs Knights of the Proms in Europe now, but used to be head of a and in um, Germany for Virgin. So, and we were old friends of his. Anyway, he was one of his friends who'd got his own, he was an enormously wealthy American guy who had got, who built a, you know, a kind of state-of-the-art studio in his home. I said, okay, John, why do you know, do you fancy this? Because he's given us the studio for free. I'll pay for your fly. You know, we can have a laugh for a week. That's what we did. We went over there. Um, it transpired that he had got a chest infection. Mm-hmm. So we were going, we said, no, it'd be all right, Martin. I'll do it. I'll do it. You know, and all that. So um, I went to the studio and we decided to do a couple of reggae tunes from his collection. I thought it'd be quite cool to do an, to try an electro reggae approach. I've never done that before, without making it sound cheesy and you know. You'd be forty-ish. Well, you know, worse. I mean, there are worse. Oh <laughs> yeah, there certainly are. Sure. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I just thought nobody's really done that, so I thought we'll have a go at that. And he was up for it, so he found a song called No One Shall Escape the Punishment of Jar. Have I told you this story? No, no. No, no One Shall Escape the Punishment of Jar. Mm-hmm. Right? And he changed it to No One Shall Escape the Punishment of John, <laughs> uh, which was really good. So he, he gave us the song, and we put together this really funky kind of electro reggae, weird kind of Martian reggae backing track. And uh, he liked it, and we went there, and he started singing. He insisted he had a spittoon by the side so he could gob up all this phlegm oh, right. during singing. Oh, it was just oh, disgusting. But anyway. <laughs> uh, that's and, a, that's um, an after effect of the meningitis he had as a kid, I think. Well, I, think well, that... I don't know. Well, yeah, possibly. But anyway, um, so it started off, and he, it was like the original song goes, it's a really gentle kind of reggae Thing. It's like no one 
no one shall escape the punishment of Jai. You know, I can't remember. It's very yeah. boring melody, but whatever. Anyway, so he comes on and he starts, and uh, I'm cueing him in, and it's, it goes, no one shall escape the punishment of Jaina. And I'm going, this is fucking awesome. Yeah. You know, this is like more like sex pistols than pill. Yeah. You know, and um, anyway, we did it all with uh, commensurate interruptions uh, due to expectoration. <laughs> and and um, put it together, and it sounded great. I loved it. There was another song that we did uh, which wasn't quite successful. And I didn't really. I thought it was, just didn't work for whatever reason. In fact, I can't even remember what it was called. Um, but this one definitely worked. So anyway, it, I recorded the rest of the tracks on the BF2 album. I had every intention of putting it on the album. Uh, when I'd recorded the rest of the album, as you will see. If you have a look at the track listing, it just, there was nothing, there was no congruent point of contact between what we'd done with that and anything else on the album. Because the album evolved into a kind of electro soul album. And I just couldn't find a place to put it in, even as a bonus track. It seemed, in the context of uh, of the album as it, as it was compiled, it would have seemed like a, a, you know, a sarcastic side note, and I didn't want it to be that. You know, I wanted it to be respected for what it was, which is a genuine attempt. Sure, at something different. So we decided not to put it on the album. Then later, we put out a kind of career box set of the three BEF albums. I asked John whether he'd let me put it on the box set, which came out in two thousand eleven. Yeah, and he said no. So it's never seen the light of day. Oh. And it's really good. <laughs> you mentioned something about Bob Geldof to me off mic. Then I heard on your new podcast, which I want to talk about before we close this out, because I love it. And I want uh, everyone listening now to listen to that. Is right. uh, that uh, you had some kind of transatlantic flight with Bob Geldof? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's another story in the autobiography. Oh, okay. Um, and it's all right. I'm quite happy to tell you now. Um, there, do you, I mean, your listeners, some may remember um, the new music seminar in New York uh, in the 80s. The year I went was 1981 anyway, when Penthouse and Payment had just come out. And it was the big kind of high profile conference uh, for musicians. And um, I mean, it, all forms of music, actually. It wasn't just pop and rock music. I think they had, it was for film, film music makers and it was a big deal. I mean, they they held it um, in Manhattan. I can't remember where, but the the hall held about four or five hundred people, most of which were like journalists, really. Sure. Um, sure. Anyway, so we were invited over. Um, I was invited over uh, uh, to represent as the kind of radical pop rock kind of thing uh, <laughs> from Britain. Yeah. Um, Bob Geldof was invited over as, you know, Boomtown Rats. This is this is before um, Band-Aid. Right. Um, At that time, he did have a, quite a reputation for being uh, interesting on talk shows. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, and charismatic and that's, that, you know, and all that. And, and also, we were working at that time with uh, Paulie Yates. This would be around the time that he did The Wall as well, I imagine. 
Yeah, possibly. Yeah. Anyway, so he, he had a very high profile. So anyway, we got invited over. And I was I was kind of in contact with Bob at the time, and he got on all right. He's quite a fun guy at that point. Um, so we sat on the, but they booked us onto a flight together with seats next to each other, and I wasn't sure that was a good idea. You <laughs> uh, can talk the back legs off a donkey. And, um, you know, I tend to prefer listening to music or whatever. Anyway, so the first 20 minutes go along and he's not stopped talking. And it's like half an hour and it's an hour. And eventually he gets onto politics. Mm-hmm. And he said, you know, you need to, um, you know, what, what Britain needs is a good, strong leader. You know, like uh, Margaret Thatcher is going to be great for Britain. <laughs> you know, and I went, Bob. You know, just give it a fucking rest. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, he, I mean, because he knows we just he knows very well. I've just put out, we don't need that fascist group saying right. all this, and either he's been prov- uh, a provocateur or he, he just simply didn't care what I thought, and he thought, oh well, at least I'll get so uh, uh, it'll be good crack, you know. And I'm going, not for me, it isn't. You know, yeah, this is serious stuff, and if you'd come from you know, the the kind of background I come from, I, I can see the direct negative impact of this stuff. The background um, he came from as well. Well, you know, there's nothing more terrible than kind of people who betray their... their uh, never forget the bridge that brought you over, in the words of Aretha Franklin, you know. Uh, I can relate I can, I, I can relate that to Sting and to Brian Ferry as well, for that matter. Is it true that Brian Ferry is a right-wing guy? Because it, it's kind of oh, crushing yeah. to me. Oh, that's so... It's, oh, <laughs> it's, it's incredibly sad, isn't it? It really um, is. Uh, there's that kind of swathe of rock artists who just want to be Lord of the Manor, don't they? And it's pathetic. I can't, I can't deal with it. He was, uh, I think, a coal miner's son? Yeah, exactly. Just, just sad. Anyway... So I'm, I'm stuck on a plane with Bob Geldof burning my ear, um, and he starts going on and on and on about Margaret Thatcher. Uh. Wow! And uh, I said, Bob, I'm going to have to move seats <laughs> <laughs> because I can't listen to any more of your bullshit. Literally. So I just went and sat somewhere else on the plane, and he, and of course we we're on the same panel when we when we got there, so we still saw each other, and he's he's. One of these guys has got a, you know a skin like a rhino, so he didn't he didn't take offence or anything. He's just like, you know, it's the it's all with him. It's all the big I am, you know, and so we're all just orbiting, we're all just planets orbiting his sun, you know. I see what you mean. Yeah. So that's fine. Uh, I mean, but um, no collabs coming soon. Uh, <laughs> no, and actually, I bumped into him recently, and he basically blanked me. Really? Wow. Yeah. I guess he was heard about the seat change. You know, people hide those things. Well, you know, you know something? When Paul Yates died, mm-hmm. um, he called us and said, look, um, we'd like to play uh, These Boots Are Made For Walking, which Paula recorded, as the coffin is carried down the center of the church. And we gave him permission to do that. You know, it's quite a deep connection in in a lot of ways. Sure, um, but it's just sad. It's sad, you know. Yeah, it is. Well, something that's not sad though is your exciting new podcast. Ah, <laughs> I do. I love. A, I love a good segue. 
<laughs> Why, thank you. Electronically yours with Martin Ware. Yeah. Yeah, I'm very happy with it, to be honest. I've put quite a lot of effort into it. And I thought, well, you know what? In the, in the whole lockdown thing, uh, I've got a, my own recording studio. Uh, I needed, um, uh, together with the autobiography, I thought, I've, all, I've become a big fan of po- podcasts. I'm mm-hmm. going to listen. My favorite is Mark Maron's podcast. Oh, yeah. That's a great show. And he does, you know, as you know, he's done like 1,300 episodes. Yeah. And uh, I, I, just, I just love his his, uh, his candor and his uh, uh, honesty and his – I treat it like therapy, you know. I mean, it's kept me company throughout the lockdown and kept me sane to a certain extent. Certainly, yeah. So then I thought, well, I'm, I'm you know, I'm going to a lot of trouble to write this autobiography. I would quite like to be able to raise my profile a bit in, an, in anticipation of its release. Yeah. Which will be in autumn – 2021 and i thought well you know i've got a recording studio <laughs> uh i can play i could do something similar to the marin podcast you know i like the fact that he plays a little bit of music every week i could do something on a different synth every week i don't think i can do that kind of uh level of self-examination mm-hmm. that he, he does i'd like to be able to but i just find it a bit too naked for me sure um so maybe I can grow into that. But I love his the intimate way that he manages to make the listener feel like part of his world. Right. Even though he's on his own, which is the irony. Right. Uh, and so I, I want to incorporate a bit more of that into what I do. But basically, it's the same shape as Mark Maron's podcast. Yeah, you have the intro piece, and then you have a guest on, and you explain yeah. where the how you know them. or Yeah, what's really interesting, I think, is – you know, I asked for, for like people to email me with comments or whatever they want to do uh, or ideas. And uh, there's been quite a few emails. And, and uh, one of them said, I think he'd, I think it'd be much better if he gave a bit more focus. I, start, I got a bit bored when he started drifting off. And I said, well, that's the point. That is the point absolutely of podcasts. It's not a radio program. It's not a documentary. <laughs> yeah, which, by the way, a lot of documentaries lately, I get really frustrated with, for instance, the David Foster documentary. That guy's career is so vast and has so many stories in it. But they got to make it 100 minutes because they feel like they got to make it 100 minutes. There's yeah. no reason to do that anymore. It's not fitting yeah. into a time schedule on a TV channel. Everything's amorphous. Everything is the size you want it to be. Yeah, I agree completely. In fact, you know, I mean, what I, the other thing I, I quite like about uh, what the fuck, and um, and also Adam Buxton's podcast was an influence as well. He's got a slightly different approach, which is more comedic and gentler. Mm-hmm. Um, but they they all contract and expand. Yes, in terms of time, depending on you know, how interesting the content is, I suppose. Sure. And also the, the flow of the conversation. You know, sometimes conversations yeah. have a natural 45-minute, you know, span. Yeah. And some... Like Ellie, Ellie Jackson's one, uh, we kind of ran out of things to essentially talk about. She talks quite fast. You know, Richard Hawley is, is a kind of lugubrious char- character, you know. Yeah. is more, more... And what I've realized, the other great thing about podcasts is, it's just as much about the tone of voice and the onomatopoeia of what's going on and the continuum of the sound of yeah. the voice is concerned. 
almost like a trance-like state, which acts as a carrier wave for the information that's being imparted. That's such a brilliant way to put it. And of course, that would make sense because, you know, the way you think about sound, I mean, you do sound installations, you do a lot of work with sound that's not necessarily, quote unquote, yeah, yeah. music, if you will. Yeah, that's right. So I think it, what the, the most important thing is literally tone of voice. Right. In a podcast. Um, rather than content is important, but not as important. Um, and my theory is also that every podcast is really essentially about the person doing the podcast and the lens that they see the world through. So who the guests are, how they talk to the guests, what they talk to the guests about, because you can take the same guest, put them on 10 different podcasts, and you're going to get 10 different shows pretty much. Exactly. Exactly. And um, I've had nothing but positive comments from the people I've interviewed because they very rarely get the uh, they, they very rarely get the chance to be as open as as I allow them to be. It's interesting because you think that it's a matter of persuading people to reveal themselves, mm-hmm. but a lot of the time it's about giving them the space to reveal themselves. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's really key. It, I mean, obviously you'd like to have an idea maybe of what you want to talk about, but what I find is like, for instance, with, with you, I made a couple notes cause I didn't want to forget a couple things, but like one word things, you know, like Geldof or LaRue yeah. or something like that. But I have, yeah. a, you know, I have an, an, an interest and for me, it's about having the conversation and sometimes the stuff on the list uh, you don't get to because it becomes inessential. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. And the other thing is that, um, well, as a reflection of my kind of creative practice throughout, throughout my creative, throughout my creative career, um, I've always believed in allowing things to develop organically rather than uh, over planning anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Uh, it's not laziness. I just believe you get the best result that way. That's why I always say whenever I do interviews to people or uh, with people um, where I'm being interviewed on, say, a radio show or a TV show, and they say, you know, uh, well, here is the list of questions. I'm going, don't tell me any questions. <laughs> right, right. That's the worst. No what you are going to ask me because then you'll get an authentic answer and can be more interesting and nothing's off nothing's off 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 limits unless in extreme circumstances i'll just say it's off limits but you know go where you want i do miss in-person tapings because there's a certain difference to that I mean, oh there is definitely. another thing that happens when people overly plan is they you rule out the possibility of discovery yeah, and the, a, a real kind of uh, flow killer is is uh, prepared questions and segments. That's the other thing that is deadly. Number eight. <laughs> what is your favorite color? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, because and also that thing where, as I'm sure you've experienced, where the person asking the questions seems to be just waiting till you're done talking to ask the next question because that's the only thing that matters. Yeah, yeah, they're not. It's not. A, it's not a duplex of informa- information in that instance um yeah anyway i've learned quite a lot through doing uh podcasts and uh i've done 11 of them now i'm looking and, forward uh, to the rest of uh, the ones taped already well, and the rest of the show next, really yeah yeah next um 
the one on New Year's Day is going to be fantastic. It's uh, Sandy Shaw. I don't know if you know. Sandy I do. Shaw. I mean, I'm lightly familiar, not uh, overwhelmingly yeah. familiar, but yeah. Well, she was massively popular in the UK. She had several number one records in the '60s. She was uh, a style icon, fashion icon, right? Uh, uh, yeah, and, and we remain friends. I mean, she's obviously old now, but um, I think she's like mid seventies. Yeah. Um, but she's an amazingly characterful person and her stories of that period of popular music, you know, uh, in the UK swinging sixties, basically, um, is, has always fascinated me, you know? Sure. And the other thing is, you know, just going with your instinct on like, I'm interested in that. That's pretty much the criteria because a lot of times people get hung up on Oh, do people know who this person is? Will this translate to this market or whatever? It's really, if you're interested in them, probably, you know, just like Marin show, I'm sure there's lots of people on there the first time. Well, you heard I them. mean, I don't know most of the people on there. I sure. Mean, to be honest, it doesn't matter to me because uh, basically I bought into the idea that if he finds them interesting, I will. Yeah. There are some, there are some exceptions actually. <laughs> well, uh, you know, 1300 episodes, there's going to be a couple yeah. exceptions. Uh, before we wrap up, um, well, first off, thank you so much for um, all the time. And oh, that's great. No, I enjoy talking to you. It's good. Oh, good. Yeah, and I enjoy talking to you. Hope, uh, I'd like to do it again uh, sometime. Yeah, sure. At the beginning of lockdown, like every show, every show was just talking about COVID, 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 which it's understandable because it's all that's going on in our world. I found that it's been better to like not focus on that in discussions, and it's been easier not to lately. I don't know how. But you said something in one of your shows about your mental health taking a battering during this yeah. time. I was wondering if you could uh, talk a little bit about that and, and the ways that it affected you, because I found that personally, there was a bit of a almost identity slippage. Yeah. Um, I'm lucky. I mean, I've got a, a, uh, a, a loving family um, who have all suffered in their own ways, you know? Um, sure. Son of my daughter have got a few issues. I don't really want to go into, but no, that's fine. Uh, uh, but uh, and my wife, who's historically been, um, obviously, you know, central my life. Sure, uh, as like everyone has, you know, periods of depression or whatever due to due to various factors in your life. Um, but. Um, in this period, I've been the one who's been. Uh, uh, um, I've always had a very consistent view of myself, mm-hmm. um, which is, to a greater or lesser extent, I'm always looking forward, sure, and doing doing new stuff, uh, with uh, various degrees of success or anticipated success, which is all I need to keep my fire burning. Yeah, um, and. Of course, you know, I've talked about the autobiography and the podcast, and that's kind of taken that place when I'm not been doing music or being able to perform. But it's the sense of helplessness is is difficult for people, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's overwhelming, isn't it? I mean, they, there was a, a a period of really quite severe unreality in the in the summer where things had calmed down a bit here, and it was just. Un, it's a sense of unreality every day that that really disturbed me. Yeah, where you couldn't really do normal things, but you could do some normal things. Mm-hmm. 
and not just because of the rules, just because of the general vibe. Yeah. And I felt very uncomfortable going to big department stores and all you know, all the normal things that you normally do. And, Which uh, you could kind of do, but everything I found when I did leave the apartment was compromised by this fear and this whole weird aspect of having to do all of these precautions and then worrying about every interaction. Uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, I'm very lucky in as much as I live in a part of London right next door to two of the most beautiful parks in London, mm. uh, Regent's Park and Primrose Hill. So that's kept me sane, yeah. just having somewhere to kind of populate that's this, uh, at least away from people and full of greenery. But then as things started, as the second wave of it all started, um, my... Uh, um, I got very little notice, but my my brother died from COVID. Oh, I'm so sorry, Martin. Yeah, and um, that hit me hard. Of course, yeah. I uh, never got to see him before before he died because he was in Sheffield, and and um, my family, I think, presuming that he was going to get better, didn't want to worry me. Oh um, wow! And uh, and it was too late by the time they let me know. Oh, that's that's horrible. I'm so sorry. Yeah, really. And uh, so that was about a month ago. And um, yeah, but, but you know, like anyway, so I was saying the, the, the funny way it's worked out, I've had a very rough time, obviously not performing, not, not having that, that kind of, I mean, we've done an average of say 50 gigs a year for the last 15 years. Sure. And you had a big brace of shows coming up. Yeah. Yeah. Massive number of shows coming up. Uh, and, um, it just seemed like the timing was very bad, you know? Sure. Um, and anyway, it did affect me, but what, what's transpired is I've been in a, uh, 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 for the first time in my life in an, in a relatively mentally unstable place. And my wife has, uh, turned into the giant granite rock in my, in the center of my universe. Thank <laughs> God. Right. And when you're used to being the support beam as well, which it sounded like you were, it, it can be doubly uh, troubling to be yeah. taken yeah, down if by we were both, uh, If we were both in the same state, uh, God knows what would happen. Sure. It never seems to quite work that way. So I'm very grateful for that. Oh, on top of all this, um, we, are, uh, we have this plan for years, but we are um, downsizing our, our home and moving out. So we, we're going to be kind of nomadic for a while. Which is quite nice. I'm quite looking forward to it. We've lived in the same place for 30 years. So. Sure. So when you say nomadic, are you going to um, do like a an RV type of thing? Or what? what's the... Well, it, in, a, in a normal world, it might have been a possibility, but I don't think it's possible at the moment. I think we're just going to rent somewhere in, in, in London uh, for 6 to 12 months until this all calmed down a bit and then um, put everything in storage and... I don't know, do some other stuff. You know, it's good though to have a change like that because it, uh, even moving in, which moving is never fun, but it's going to feel like Christmas Day <laughs> because you're going to be in a different location. <laughs> well, I, I mean, we've already. I mean, we're we're both very ready for it. Yeah. You know, sure. Um, yeah. Because the you know uh, my son and daughter have both left home, and we're in a big five bedroom house which we don't need. Sure. Just feels like the right time. Also, considering the whole Brexit shit show, um, there's a good chance I think that property values are going to go 
down 10, 20%. Sure. So now's a good time to sell. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. That's great though. Then you can, you know, move about how you want. Yeah. I'm looking forward to a new adventure. I know that you're a big fan of 2001 A Space Odyssey. And I just wanted to see if you had a couple other film titles that you'd like to mention of films that impacted you. Well, obviously Clockwork Orange. Sure. Um, Yeah. Contemporary films. I really like, um, I liked Inception despite its, you know, kind of plot holes and Mm -hmm. um, um, I, uh, in terms of, um, Oh, things like Cinema Paradiso was just beautiful, wasn't it? And mm. Oh, you know, I haven't seen that. I have to make a note of that. I, I've um, wanted to see that for ages. It's just such a great film. Um, and um, I mean, there's so many. I just, you know, I, I'm a member of BAFTA, so I get to judge all the films every year. Um, so I literally watch 100 or so films a year. Um, it'd be impossible for me to single out particular ones i'll tell you what's really good this year what's that uh, soul have you seen soul no i the haven't disney, the disney animation no i haven't do yourself a favor did you like uh it's the same people who wrote up and uh, inside out oh, okay yeah those are those are really cool so that's yeah definitely sounds but like a fun. soul it's just cool it's really beautifully made conceptually and philosophically profound mm-hmm. um and just kind of trippy, you know. Well, that sounds I, good. I really, really like it. That's my favorite film of this batch of films this year. Um, oh, and also uh, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. That's uh, about 1920s Chicago, I think it is, and um, and kind of racism at that point. And beautiful acting from uh, Viola... Davis. Oh, Davis, and... and um, the guy who just died, who was... Um, oh, Chadwick Boseman. Uh, Chadwick Boseman. Nailed it. Go down to the bookmakers, put money on him uh, for... for um, uh, Oh, the Oscar? Best actor. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, yeah, I, I think it's nailed on from what I've seen. Cool. Well, now I have some stuff to watch, which is good, because, uh, like I said, I, de- I generally go into the uh, treasure trove of old, obscure flicks. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> Well, Martin, oh, 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 Zardoz. Oh, yeah, that's you know? <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Zardoz is funny. Well, thank you again, Martin. It's been a pleasure talking with you again, and I look forward to the next thank time. You. Fantastic. For more, head on over to patreon.com slash Craig and Friends, sign up, and slide on in to the Thunderbuns of Hot Dog Club.